Welcome to Arts for the Health of It, a podcast where you will discover creative ways to improve your health and well-being. Someone may have told you that art isn't for you, but they were wrong. Anyone can create arts for the health of it. No talent or experience necessary. I'm just a little songbird. Try to fly my way homeward with the melody and I make the beat. Don't know where it'll take me, take me. Cause when I'm in the dark of night, I sing my way back to the light. Come along with me and your heart will see that a song changes everything. Oh. One day I'm going to try to do that last right before it cuts off where she's like, ah! every time I'm like, I'm going to try that one day. Oh, like uh, live? Okay. No, in my head, I want to like get to that level <laughs> of being able to sing where she can hit that high note. That's Richard, what... do you want voice lessons? Is that what you're trying to tell uh, me? I don't know. Yeah. Live right here is when we'll do it. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Arts for the Health of It. I'm your host, Richard Wilmore. And I'm your other host, Constanza Rader. And today, we're really excited to talk with Dr. Chris Prince. He um, published a new book earlier this year called Allison's Gambit. Um, and on their on his website, he says Allison's Gambit is a very relatable story about the breakdown of a caregiver when faced with the burden of taking care of her mother with dementia. This novel asks the reader if they might similarly try and change their own fate if they would have a similar disease. And we're really excited to talk with him because he uses the power of storytelling um, to make us think de- deeply about our human experience and how we. Um, the decisions we make around our healthcare, especially towards end of life. Um, and then he also is a musician himself. So, you know, we had to have him on. Double whammy. Mm-hmm. All right. Are you ready, Chris? He's shaking his head down there. So let's bring out uh, <laughs> Dr. Chris Price. Hi, Chris. Hi there. Thanks for being here. It's great. Uh, yeah, thanks for the intro. I appreciate it. <laughs> of course. We're excited to talk with you. Where did, I have so many questions. We were talking before about your office and just the mood you set walking into your office in the waiting room, but where did the realization come that it's a full 360 like experience? You know, I, that's a great question. I think probably just becoming a patient yourself and you, you go to different waiting rooms and that experience that you feel. And my dentist, I went to see my dentist and brand new dentist, never been there. And as soon as I walked in the door, I, I just opened the door. They go, hi, Chris. How do you know I, who I am? They go, we look over every single patient on our list. We plan for you. It's like, wow. I, had, I didn't experience that at all. I sat in the waiting room. It was so nice. Um, I just felt like a human being before I even got there. They would disgust me. And I thought, you know, I, I want to try and mimic that in my office. I want somebody when they come in to know we all know who they are. And that makes a big difference. Wow. And so you're a family medicine doctor. Um, yeah. And you were mentioning like you that we'll just talk about this a little bit before we get to the book, but that you use 
the arts and the design and your space to do that very thing. Can you tell tell a little bit about some of the th things that you have in, in your waiting room in your office? Yeah, well, one thing, I love music and I have to have music in my office. And uh, so it got a stereo always playing. We have, it has like, I don't know how many channels, probably like 150 different channels. You can choose whatever genre you want. And we play around with it, seeing what people like more. It generally tends to be this sort of 60s, 70s music that people <laughs> tend to like the most, I will say. That's what we tend to usually have on. Um, but then we've got a, a fish tank, a saltwater fish tank. And I find that's really kind of sets the mood um, and makes people feel more comfortable. Mm. Love that. Yeah. I, w I want, I'd want to go. That sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start? I, I feel like I have so many questions for you. One, I want to talk about uh, the piano and when you started playing the piano and what drew you to it. Yeah, I think probably my sister, she started before I did and I just got jealous and I wanted to play. Uh, I was about 10 years old and first she was starting to teach me and then my parents allowed me to take lessons as well. Uh, took lessons for about six years and then just school got more complicated, you know, end of high school, college and I stopped. And this is a funny story. So one of my first patients I ever had as a physician, I said, what do you do? She goes, I'm a piano teacher. I said, oh, you know, I'd like to take the piano again. And she says, if I had a dime for every time someone said, I want to take lessons, she goes, I'd be a wealthy woman. Well, I had to prove her wrong. So I'm now right around in my late 20s. I called her up afterwards. I said, I want to take lessons. I'm serious. And I took lessons from her for a few years. Wow. And it's been great. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I was, and I'm very stubborn. I told her, I said, I want to learn the third movement of the Moonlight Sonata. And mm. It took me almost a year. <laughs> it took me so long to learn that movement. It took forever, but uh, it, it's sort of out of my league. I'll be honest with you, but it was still <laughs> it was still fun to kind of say I accomplished it and actually could make it through. That's awesome. Now we know that the arts are kind of a self regulating behavior that humans have done throughout time. Is what role do the arts play in your life as a caregiver, and how do you? How do you use music and the arts to um, be a better doctor, to, uh, to help deal with the normal stressors of your life? You know, I, I probably use literature the most. And I, I, I have a scribe. I love, that was one thing that I changed about maybe four or five years ago in my office. So instead of having the patient, frankly, look at the bottom of or back of a computer screen, I'm face to face. I'm sitting right in front of them. I have a scribe who basically types everything down. And since I've been doing that, I feel like I have much more connection with my patients. And over and over again, I start to learn their story and I go, have you ever read this book? And so I'm starting to have a list of books that I recommend from, you know, the person who's depressed, the person who's, you know, anxious, trouble at work or whatever. And I find that helps tremendously. Um, often the next time we come back and we talk about the book and it's just another way of interacting. Um, one of my most dramatic was I ended up actually talking to Jody Picole, who I love. I adore her writing. Oh, wow. Um, I had uh, a really difficult, I got a phone call actually. And it was actually, sorry, it was a text from a 14 year old girl, identical twin. And she said, my sister wants to kill herself. And I was like, wow, I wasn't anticipating that at all. Um, first of all, I didn't know who was texting. I, I, sometimes I don't even know how people get my phone number to text me and I'm trying to figure it out. 
bottom line is she, she had written a book um, years ago. I think it's called My Sister's Keeper. I, mm-hmm. I, and, and I remember, so I went to the family trying to not give away that to the parents that I knew. I went and did a home visit. I love doing home visits. And I gave her story. I outlined that story to the family to not, quote, give it away. Who was the one who called in the first place? Who's the one who might be suicidal? And I used her story to outline, we've got a problem. And how would you deal with this problem of that story? And it was so, it was so much easier then because it wasn't like you directed it, hey, what have you done wrong? Or why, you know, you ignoring this person. It was, how would you deal with this story? And then that was what helped pull that family. And the girls are doing great now, I might add. And so I, I, I emailed Jody Picole to say, thank you. You really helped me through a, a really intense situation by using your story. And by using your story, I completely deflected it from the patients that were having these issues. Wow. What was her response? I have to know. Well, or did she respond? She did. And she, she said, that's why I write. She, and she does a lot of medical stuff. I don't know if you've read any of yeah. hers, but it's often very medically related. And she says, that is why I write to get across and allow, and Frank, I don't know if she meant me specifically, but to definitely have people read her story and commiserate with the characters. And I think in doing so, we feel better about ourselves and feel like we're not alone. Hmm. Well, now, Chris, it sounds, yeah, that's, that's really cool. And it seems, Chris, that you've done the same thing. Like you now have your own book, um, Allison's Gambit. Can you talk about the book and what inspired it and what it's about, what people um, might get out of this book? Well, you know, I I think one of the, the main things, what inspired it? Um, it was a patient. We have our own philosophies and whatever philosophy is, it could be about death penalty, whatever. We, we have those kind of ingrained for so many years. And this patient presented me with a philosophy that I was so different from my own and so funny. I went home and I kept on thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I started to understand her. And I felt I need to write a story so that somebody who listens to her tale would say, I may not agree with you, but I understand you. Hmm. So I looked her in the eye, again, I'm sitting there right in front of my patient because my scribe's behind me. And I say to her, I said, tell me, what will get you to quit smoking? And she looked me straight in the eye and said, nothing. I will never stop smoking. And it was so strong. I, I was kind of, most people aren't that strong, but she was very strong. I said, why not? She said, I had to live with my mother and take care of her for, with Alzheimer's disease for the last four or five years of her life. It was a horrible experience. I never want to put my kids through that. I want to die young. I'm going to keep on smoking. Wow. That's what I said. I was truly, it was a wow moment for me. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. Night after night, I'm thinking about it, thinking about it. And that's what prompted me to say, I want to write about what would make a character, a person, she was a real life person, feel that way. And the whole goal of the book is to, through this character, Allison, say, Again, not so that somebody would necessarily do the same thing that she's doing, but to at least say, I understand why somebody's goal is not just to live as long as possible. Because if as long as possible means that you're going to get demented in the future and have your kids take care of you or anybody take care of you, and you, you don't want that in your future, 
at least it becomes relatable and understandable. And I love the front cover of the book, by the way, because my publisher, Benny, who's wonderful, I kept on starting to think, the more I started talking about people, Alzheimer's is the scariest thing that I think people actually conceive of when they think about passing away. Mm. And the more I talked about people, the more I realized it is a deep down seated fear that people have. And it's so strong. You start thinking of, yeah, I think I would consider dying of anything but. And that's sort of what that front cover to me represents. I don't care what it is, anything different is a better choice than living like, frankly, like sometimes the character I'm bringing up in the book, maybe the character's mother, I should say. Wow. That's, it's such a, it's so different because the focus in Western medicine, it seems, is prolonged life at all costs. That that's kind of the focus and the measure of success is, you know, prolonging life. But it seems if that's our focus, we're we have a we're going to have a success rate of zero because everyone's going to eventually die. So I think that seems like that's the question this book is asking: is what makes life worth living? What like what? I guess that's a question right. for you to answer. <laughs> no, I, I mean the 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 afterward of the book, and this is what it really kind of came to me when I really came full circle looking at her her saying I want to die young is what I've recognized is no matter what our ailment is as we're getting to the end of life there's always a potential remedy you can try this you can try this there's always another trial there's always another heart defibrillator there's always something we can do and it's now becoming more we're having to tell the physicians I'm throwing the white flag I don't want any more treatment and that is such a novel philosophical concept that I don't think we as the human race are really prepared for that. And the idea of saying no is so difficult. And what we're not recognizing is that so many people actually, when they think about it, go, do you want to continue the way you are? They say, I don't. But the expectation is that you do. And frankly, the family's expectation is that you do. Um, mm. They can get much more, I found, adamant when you talk about hospice, for example. It's the family says, oh, no, do not even think about it. You've got to do that next trial. You've got to do that another round of chemotherapy or whatever it is, um, more so than the patient. The patient's usually the easiest one to convince, hmm. to say, I don't want any more. Hmm. Yeah. So, yes, it is a, a strong topic. And I do think the bottom line is, I just want people to think about it. There is no right answer. There's no when you get to the book, it goes, this is what Dr. Price is telling you to think. Not at all. Um, <laughs> in fact, my one take home, and if I'd say if people are listening, here's the take home. Live life more fully. Mm. When you enjoy every aspect of it, when you hear that song that brings you back to the memory of your wedding day, wh- whatever it is, enjoy it. Tell your wife or your husband, say, remember that day, bring it up, dance again. Remember all of those wonderful things. Don't stop thinking about the things that give us joy. Mm. And things that don't give us joy, I must admit, I'm doing this. I shouldn't say this now on live, but it's like, if I'm at a meeting I don't like, I now just go. I leave. I, I, why stay? I don't want to be there. Um, if you don't want to do something, don't do it. Do things you enjoy. And mm. I feel like the, the philosophy of the book is 
focus more on what we enjoy, focus more on happiness. And I do think the one thing that the medical establishment could definitely do more is instead of just saying, hey, you've got this disease, this disease, or whatever it is, focus more on what's going to make you happy. And we don't spend enough time doing that. That hmm. is the number one thing we should be asking. And I tell people, you need to exercise. Why should I exercise? It makes people happier. I go, I don't care if you live a day longer, but it'll make you happier. You should exercise. Hmm. And I think that is the best thing we do. Go outside, exercise, be with people. Um, it, it is the key to life. Whether you consider yourself a musician or not, music is all around us and it affects our everyday lives. Whether it's background music influencing our shopping habits in a store, organ music adding the vibe to a baseball game, or a playlist convincing us to keep going on that last mile of a run. I'm Minty Peterson, host of the podcast Enhance Life with Music, where we take a holistic look at the power of music in our everyday lives through the lens of science and health, sports and entertainment, business and education. You can find me and Enhance Life with Music at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast or wherever you get your audio. Unleash the power of music. Make your day richer with The Richard Wilmore Show. Meet amazing musicians, talented actors, brilliant authors, hilarious comedians, and the most creative people in entertainment. Download the KP Media TV app to watch on Apple TV, Roku, and Amazon Fire. Medical professionals are burning out at an alarming rate. Burnout can cause health workers to feel hopeless, trapped, helpless, worthless, depressed, sleepless, and tired. By joining the Hearts Need Art Gratitude Grams program, medical staff receive a personalized email and video from a musician, an artist, or writer once a week that includes a message of thanks, an encouraging song, uplifting poem, or a simple art activity. After watching their Gratitude Gram, participants report feeling more hopeful, empowered, energized, and appreciated. If you are or know a healthcare worker that would like to receive free gratitude grams, please visit heartsneedart.org. Who would you say that the book is for? Caregivers. Mm. Hands down, it's for caregivers. Uh, So once I started writing, I said, you know, I'm going to just start getting some thoughts down about her philosophy. I started listening to patients over and over again. I started realizing that the sort of 40 to 60 year old generation is taking care of their parents and how much they're struggling. You just hear it in little like snippets during the appointment. Ooh, this is a big deal. You are getting worn out, uh, worn out. And I, I couldn't believe how difficult it is. And no one sort of, it feels like not enough people are patting them on the back and saying, you're doing a tremendous job. And I think in the end, what it tends to happen is the guilt factor just gets higher and higher. And the guilt factor of, it gets harder and harder. The caregiver can't keep up with all that they must do. And somewhere along the line, for so many people, there's the, do I put them in a nursing home or do I not put put them in a nursing home? And the guilt around that is tremendous because nobody in their 30s and 40s says, I kind of am hoping, I can't wait for the day I put my parents in a nursing home. That is the last thing we want to do. That's what our parents have been telling us the whole time. Whatever you do, don't put me in a nursing home. And I feel like one of the thrusts of this book for the caregiver is saying, your goal is to do the best care for your pay, for your parent or your loved one. It could be whoever it is, your loved one, your best care. And often after a while, that best care is not you. 
You can mm. do great love, but not necessarily the best care. Mm. And when that's the focus, and that really should be the focus, that's certainly one of the take-homes from the book, then it is the best way to go. Mm. It's It sounds very familiar with what we see um, on our like oncology units specifically, um, where we I see those same those same instances of family members who keep pushing for the next thing and the next thing. Um, I can think of one instance where they, you know, they were they were pushing, pushing, and finally that they realized one day that like it hadn't hit them before that the patient was terminal and there wasn't a cure. And when they finally accepted that, they were able to go home and be with their family. But at that point, he only had a couple of days left. Like it was down to days. And they could have spent so much more quality of time with their family, making memories in those last days instead of suffering with additional treatments in the hospital. And I I remember the, the social working team being mad at this particular patient's doctor for not clearly articulating that these are not curative measures that we're doing. Um, and so I, what role do you see that healthcare providers have in communicating to family caregivers, to patients, um, and how might you define a good death? That's a great point. Um, and bringing back to exactly what you said, so often you go, oh, I finally had comfort. I finally turned it to, we're just loving the person who's dying. And instead of being in a sort of sterile or difficult environment in the hospital, going back and forth with radiation treatments. And I, I do think though, it is our job to bring it up. And I think sometimes part of the problem is we send someone to a specialist, the specialist is saying, well, then you're asking me to do something. I therefore think it is partly the primary care's role to say, you know what, do we want to ask that question or do we want to be at home where we're just comfortable and we're happy? We're already happy. We're together. Do we want to break that up and change that? And I do feel that almost everybody has gone an iteration where they've gone to the hospital or they've taken that radiation therapy or they've done a treatment and they felt that and how difficult that is. And the question is, do you still, do you want to do that again? Or is this not a good way to be? Mm. Um, but I don't, I think too often, frankly, it's not brought up because there's, there's almost always backlash from at least one family member. Mm. And when I say backlash, somebody who gets very angry for you saying, you clearly don't care enough. I need to find somebody who cares more about my, my mm. sister. Or, and, and, it's hard to respond to that. It really is. And so rather than trying to respond to it, you just don't bring it up and say, it's, it's far easier to just refer and say, see the cardiologist and they'll work with your heart failure. See the lung specialist to work with your COPD. That is a far easier discussion to have. What kind of treatments are available? Then do you still want to continue these kind of treatments? Is this effort more than you want? And do you not want to spend months at home where you're enjoying all those things, the grandkids coming over, the holidays, you don't want to spend those times together when you're still more, have more to give and more to receive. Um, mm. Hospice invariably is called on with less than two weeks to go. Mm. Invariably. When you, when you qualify with 
a prognosis of six months, right? In most places. Six months. Yeah. And the hospice is so wonderful. Like there's so many wonderful resources that you have access to once you are on hospice. And what what I think people don't understand is like you can come off of hospice too. If things improve, like it doesn't, doesn't mean you have to stop all treatment. Like, (laughs) and I think people think of hospice and they think like, oh, they're dying immediately. Um, Actually, yeah. how I've started to sell hospice, and it works spectacularly well, I'll look at the caregiver in the eye and say, you're working hard, aren't you? This is a lot of work. I mean, from cleaning, I go, do you need help? Oh, you almost always get, oh, I need help. I go, <laughs> hospice is your best help. You want a hospital bed. You want the rails. You want oxygen. You want help. You need help. Someone coming in on a regular basis, dressing those wounds, doing, they will help you. They will? Oh, so much help. And they, <laughs> And I go, and you know, the best part is just like you said, the best part is after a while, if they do better, you take them off hospice. It's not a big deal. It is not, I, I go, I am not signing a loan or something. I'm not giving away a whole bunch of money. It doesn't matter. You can go on, you can go off. And once you sell it, that it's helped, I find that works so much better than just saying, this is what we do at the end of life. We make them comfortable. Mm-hmm. Making them comfortable is a totally different sell than, I'm going to make you, the caregiver, feel so much better because you're going to have a lot more help. And once they get that help, they never want to give it up, to be honest. They just don't. And I understand. I wouldn't want to give it up either. Um, in fact, that's one of the worst things because I think I sell it pretty well. Sometimes I go, you know, we're going to have to take them off hospice. Does that mean, does that mean this stuff goes away? Yeah, it kind of does. Uh, but that's okay. You're doing better now. That's generally still a win-win. Everyone's happy at that point. <laughs> Is there anything you learned or maybe changed about the way you do your practice from writing the book? Yes. Yeah. Uh, without a doubt. I am much more, I'm much more compassionate with other people's views that are different from my own. In fact, that's one of the things that's interesting about this book. I write this book, people read this book and they have, they assume very strongly. That's exactly how I feel. And it actually wasn't. This lady's viewpoint was definitely different from my own. It's definitely different from my, my training. But since getting that, yes, it has affected my viewpoint. But I think I'm more able to sell her viewpoint, which is the goal isn't to just live as many days as possible. And the goal really should be much more happiness and comfort along the way. That is, I, I feel like I've learned that from writing this book. And I see it more with patients. And when you bring it up, it comes out more. Hmm. On on your website, you there's like a little interview on your website, which was a very interesting read. If anyone watching, like go to his website if you want to learn more about Chris. <laughs> but there is a question asking about your favorite in- influential figures. Um, and this is what you write. Uh, you say the correct answer would be my patience. Over time, I have learned about kindness, love, despair through the lives of countless men and women who allowed me into their lives. One time I recall quite, quite vividly, a husband came in with the paramedics pumping on his chest while he was being wheeled in on the gurney. His wife trailed behind moments later with an anguish that can't be described. I recall thinking I have never felt a love so profound. Mm. I don't think you can. It's bringing in... me to tears now. I know. You wrote it. <laughs> no, no. I, I just, I, that memory is so vivid to me. 
Um, she's still my patient. Wonderful lady. Um, mm. yeah, I don't think incredible. you can do this work and be so close to illness and death and human suffering and not be affected by it. And I think seeing seeing people love deeply in in those situations that are so hard is it's what keeps me coming back. It's it's like seeing little glimpses of of heaven of just like lo pure love. Um anyway, I just it seems like you have been affected by that too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And how has that kind of changed your perspective? Right. Uh, you know, one thing I do, you know, you talk about happiness and I keep on bringing back, I think happiness is underrated as a goal for health. Um, I do think we really have to focus on it. I love movies. I like literature, but I also love movies. And one of my favorite movies, perhaps favorite movie of all time is The Shawshank Redemption. And I bring it up so often to somebody who is feeling despair. And the scene I loved was they're on top of the roof. They had to, in a hot summer day, tar a roof all day long they're prisoners and for their reward they got one beer and the happiness that they received on that day getting that one beer i think is happier than almost anybody has felt this entire year and i asked myself why did they feel so happy because if you take your average person say, here's what i want you to do today it's july in sacramento i want you to tar a roof all day long and at the end of that i'm getting no money i'm going to give you one beer and send you back to jail and yet they were that happy. And I feel like we have to channel that idea of happiness and say, it's not our circumstances. It's how we feel about things. Mm. And one of it was the togetherness. They were all together. It wasn't mm. just one person on their own. I can guarantee if it was one person on their own trying that roof, that didn't lead to happiness. It was all of them kind of getting one together. And then they can find that happiness. And I do think that we can do that ourselves. And I think we need to focus. Happiness is something we can learn. It's just like yoga. It's just like art. It's just like music. We can learn and get better at it. And I think we have to practice and we fail to practice sometimes. Hmm. Oof, that's profound. I'm not tearing up. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> now, I hope you've seen that movie. You know the scene I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, yes. It's a great scene. Yeah. What was the last creative thing you did for yourself to make yourself happy? Um, learning a new piece by Chopin that I love. Um, it's uh, it first is first prelude. Um, I like the second one too, but the the first one um, it's hard. <laughs> but I'm I'm really I'm really enjoying it. I'm just kind of getting through it again, and I love it. So I would say that. Um, I, I, had a, I had a piano tuner, I'll just uh, getting back to music. And he, he'd come to tune my piano, I had an upright, and he says, you know, you need a grand piano. And I said, well, I may need one, but one, they're really expensive, and two, I'm not that good. And he kept on saying, it doesn't matter how good you are, mm. you need a grand piano. And I listened to him, actually, a funny story, he said, I said, they cost so much money, he goes, they don't cost anything at all, you just rent them. I said, what do you mean I rent a piano? I go, you have to buy it. He said, yeah, but you can always sell it. He goes, so let's say five years from now, you don't like it. He goes, I tell you, you sell it for the same cost you bought it. So you really were just renting it. I thought that was actually quite profound. So I bought my grand piano. I'm not selling it. It's my favorite possession. <laughs> and yes, when I play, it just feels, it feels magical. And it does sound 
so much better than my upright ever did. Um, so yeah, it, it does. I, I also argue that I'm not good enough. So when I play, I have to concentrate so fully, any stress I have, any other part of my life, it goes away because I'm focused just on the music. And that's a great feeling. Mm. I like it. Yes. Where um, is the book available to buy? I'm going to put it up here, um, Allison's Gambit. You know, a Amazon's the easiest. Actually, the only thing that's funny is I, I looked under first one. I thought, Amazon, that's so cool. It's on Barnes & Noble. I've seen it at Target. But I typed in Chris Price. It didn't show up. It came up CA Price. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, I always thought Chris Price just sounded too boring. So CA <laughs> sounded much more interesting. But Allison's Gambit's the easiest way to find it if you just uh, type in Allison's Gambit. So any of the major booksellers, it's just online. But I, I hope that when someone reads it, yeah, they think differently about caregivers. Uh, they think of themselves as caregivers later on and they'll recognize, wow, that, that is gonna be difficult. It's gonna be really difficult. And if they're going through it already, I think they're gonna feel a sense of, again, it, camaraderie. I think camaraderie really helps. Just like I talked about that scene. I think if you're one person, it's so much more difficult. It's so much harder to find the happiness. Um, funny enough, laughter works. I mean, you know, we remember the show MASH when we were children, obviously a difficult situation, but they use humor to kind of get through it. Uh, it's hard to have humor when you're just by yourself. Um, mm. You have just one other person and they talk about it so much and you go through things and that'll make us feel better. Even if the situation is, Still just the same. Hmm. Yeah. So. That's awesome, Chris. How can people find you and follow you? Um, I, I do have a website now. It's uh, chrispriceauthor.com. And I've got to start working on adding to it. But it, you'll see a lot of stuff about me, random things. Um, <laughs> I always joke that I have the taste of a child. So if, if a child would like it, that's what I'm going to like as well. <laughs> um, and, but uh, yeah, you, you can learn a lot. Uh, <laughs> well, I like that one of the comments of about the book is that it's not depressing despite the subject matter. So if you're feeling squeamish about reading this book, that it's going to be just be have too heavy and depressing. Right. He infuses some humor and good storytelling in this book. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it is. It's not, I, it, I don't think it's a downer. Yeah, I definitely think at the end you feel a little uplifted. Again, you can argue like things like Shawshank Redemption. It's a downer. You can go, well, it's set in a prison. But it is one of the most uplifting movies I've ever seen in my life. Um, yep. And so, yeah, you can have subject matter, but yeah, it's how it's told. Mm. Very true. The book is Allison's Gambit by C.A. Price. When you're looking it up, it's C.A. Price, not Chris. Otherwise, you'll never find it. And uh, Chris, thank you very much for being here today. Well, I appreciate it. This was a great conversation. You two are wonderful. <laughs> we had a great time. <laughs> if you're uh, listening or watching wherever you're doing that, make sure you subscribe and head over to heartsneedart.org slash podcast to learn more about Chris and the book. Keep creating, everyone, and we will see you next time. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to Arts for the Health of It, a podcast produced by Hearts Need Art, creative support for patients and caregivers, in partnership with the National Organization for Arts and Health. You can help others learn about the healing power of the arts by subscribing, sharing, and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen or watch. The podcast is hosted by Richard Wilmore, co-hosted by Constanza Rader. Our theme song, Songbird, is written and performed by Natalie Lane. Visit heartsneedart.org to learn how you can support our mission to create joy with people facing life-altering health challenges. 
Join us next week to learn more ways you can create arts for the health of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Heartstein Art, their staff, board members, or other affiliates. All content is created for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice or to diagnose and treat any health condition. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you heard on this podcast.